The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, have you ever been somewhere and quickly realized, I don't belong here? My family experienced that this past summer. We took a road trip to Colorado, and while we were there, one day we decided to go over this little town called Vail. And the plan was to do a little four-mile hike, two miles up, two miles back, and then go look around town and go eat somewhere. And uh, so we go on the hike, and it was pretty brutal. I mean, the kids are crying. I'm crying. And it was like going up two miles of stairs and then coming back down again. And so we're pretty dirt, dirty and, 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 and grimy and smelly. Now we're walking into this town, and we realize this place, this place is different. And, uh, I mean, everyone's clothing, everyone's kind of dressed up, the cars are nice, the shops are really nice, and we just start to feel out of place. And so we go get dinner, and after we eat, we decide to take a walk by this little stream that flows through the town, and we're walking there with our dog. This is our dog, Maple, Golden Retriever, and she's still kind of a puppy, and so we're walking her, and of course, you greet other families with other dogs, and they have to greet each other and smell each other and all those fun things. And uh, so we, we approach this one family who has uh, two little pugs. Whoops, wrong one, sorry. And uh, so we stop, and we're talking to them. And then my wife says, my wife Courtney says, you know, my parents used to have a pug. And, uh, and she says, I love pugs except for, for two things. They snore and they pass a lot of gas. <laughs> and this lady says, she says, oh, well, well, not after you give them the surgery. And I'm thinking, there's a surgery for passing gas? Like, do they install a pouch or something? How does that work? But she was talking about the snoring, of course. And, uh, and then she says this, and for, the, and for the gas problem, we just feed them organic pumpkin. And we look at each other, we're like, we really don't belong here. But I noticed something in me that day. Have you, ever, have you ever found yourself judging someone, but at the same time coveting their life? Like, they're, they're so pretentious and so stuck up, but I kind of want what they have. And this is where I found myself on this day. And so today we're talking about prosperity. Uh, this is week three of a series looking at the seven deadly sins and how even among Christians, we have a way of turning the seven deadly sins into these dangerous virtues. And so I think we've kind of relabeled greed and we call it prosperity and we just say, oh, it's just God's blessing on my life. And we've kind of re relabeled these things. And so we're going through this book uh, called Dangerous Virtues by a guy named John Kostler. And he says this about greed. Greed like lust and gluttony is a sin of appetite. Most of us are pretty sure we don't suffer from greed because we don't see ourselves as wealthy. The rich are greedy, perhaps, but not us. The flaw in this reasoning is that desiring is not necessarily synonymous with having. So greed is a sin of desire. You'll notice a certain theme in this series that a lot of these things go back to desire, which are issues that are taking place in the heart. So somebody can be rich and generous, but someone can be poor and greedy. Possessions can possess us, whether we have them or not. And so in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story. And the story is about a wealthy farmer who reaps a great harvest. And the guy has so much grain that he's, he runs out of space, so he decides to build bigger barns to store the rest of his grain. 
And now at first glance, this parable doesn't seem too crazy because we might do this kind of thing with our house or our finances or our business. You know, if you run out of space, you, you, you add on and you do something different with your business. But here's the context in which Jesus is telling this story. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So there is this man out there in the crowd, and he comes up to Jesus and he says this statement, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this man has one chance to speak to the Son of God, the creator of the universe, and this is his request. Teacher, tell my brother to share with me something that a kid might say to a parent. So what is he talking about? Well, in the Jewish law, if there were two brothers, the oldest would receive two-thirds of inheritance and the youngest would receive one-third. And so this must be the younger brother coming, wanting at least half the estate. He doesn't like what the law says, so he wants Jesus to play referee here and give him half the estate and tell his brother to do the same thing. So this seems like an appeal to justice, but Jesus sees it as a case of greed. Like many today, this man comes to Jesus wanting Jesus to serve him, but not necessarily wanting Jesus to save him. And so look what Jesus says in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? This is what I want to say to my kids whenever they have a disagreement. But Jesus has no desire to weigh in to this man's family dispute. Instead, he wants to talk about a heart issue. And that issue is is coveting. So in verse 15, Jesus says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So again, this man is, is coming to Jesus, trying to use Jesus to get what he wants. He's not coming to Jesus in repentance, wanting to look at himself and his own sin. He's only concerned about the sin of another person. And I think we have to be careful here because we can often do the same thing. In our coming to Jesus, sometimes we want to, do we bring our sin, do we bring the sin of other people uh, to Jesus in that way? Now, sometimes what we're asking isn't always the issue, but it's the motive that's behind it. And I think that applies here. In the book, Kostler makes a great point. He says that greed often comes to us in respectable clothes. So for this man, his greed is clothed in justice. You know, this isn't fair. This law is unfair. It's unjust. I'm going to go to this rabbi, and hopefully he'll weigh into this discussion and tell my brother to give me what's rightfully mine. And so his, his greed is clothed with, with justice, and he wants, he wants fairness in his mind. That's all he wants is fairness. But Jesus could see right into his heart that greed is driving this request. And so as he often does, Jesus tells a story to further his point. Look with me at verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. 
So instead of simply confronting the man, Jesus tells a story. Instead of saying, listen, you're wrong, you're coveting, you need to repent, stop doing that. That's not what he does. He tells a story. Now, why does he do that? He's trying to get the man to see that he is the man in that story. And that he'll hopefully see that and and repent. So he's hoping that he'll see himself in the story and recognize his own greed. Now, listen, the man's, the, the problem isn't the plan, other verses talk about there's wisdom in saving. This, and this is not a sermon that just says, go spend all your money, go get everything. This is not a sermon about that. That's a sermon for a different day. But this is a sermon about greed and how we see greed is just prosperity sometimes. There is wisdom in saving. Of course there is. But the problem is how this man views what he owns. He doesn't just own possessions, but his possessions own him. And Jesus can see that. He can see into this man's heart and his mind, and he knows that about this person. Now, if you're like me, you read this story, and you think, this isn't really about me. Because I I don't struggle with possessions, buying new stuff. I don't struggle with materialism. I'm more of a frugal type person. I'm more of a saver, not a spender. And so that's, I'm, I'm, off, I'm off the hook today on this Sunday. Well, growing up, my parents were, were very frugal. They only had three cars that I can remember all throughout my childhood, and they bought cheap cars, and they drove those cars into the ground. First two cars I remember didn't have air conditioning, and none of them had power windows. We were always complaining, you know, why can't we get a new car? I'm tired of having to roll down the window. I want to push a button like all my friends. That's what I kept telling my parents. And I kept saying things to them like, you know, when I get my own money, I'm going to buy a new car every few years. So now that I have my own money, today I drive a 2001 Nissan Pathfinder. And you've seen those progressive commercials with the guy teaching class on how not to become your parents. Well, I'm becoming my parents, okay? And my kids are now always asking, you know, when are we going to get a new car? And I keep telling them, look, if you just wait, pretty soon it's going to be a classic, you know? <laughs> We're going to take it to car shows. People are going to say, is that a 2001 Pathfinder? And I will say, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. And, uh, So listen, some people, my parents have kind of passed down frugality to me, but but some people are spenders, some people are savers. But listen, both people can be greedy. And if greed is our motivation to save, which it often is for me, then we are guilty of the same sin as the big spenders. You know, it's interesting how whenever you go put a big check in the bank, how that affects you psychologically, there is something about that activity that makes you feel like kind of renewed when you put some, a big check in the bank. The same thing happens whenever you go buy something new. It could be something big or something small, but when you purchase a new product or new, something new for your house, there's something about you that feels a little bit renewed when you go and do that. And I've always been intrigued by this quote by a fashion designer. This, this person is not a believer, but I think this quote fits here. And she says this, I have always had more faith in fashion than in God. I believe the right clothes could make me perfect. I still do. I was driven by the belief that the right garment could save me. She uses words like 
faith and God and save in reference to clothing. Listen, she admits she's looking for something spiritual whenever she goes and makes a purchase. This is something that most of us would never admit, never admit. We would never say that you, you feel spiritually more significant whenever you go make a purchase or put some money in the bank. We don't admit that about ourselves. This woman who's not even a believer is admitting that there is something spiritual going on whenever she designs something, whenever she makes something, whenever she goes and purchases something. It's fascinating. I think the man in this parable understands there's something similar to that going on here. There's something spiritual going on whenever he adds to his savings account. And so he says, he starts preaching to his soul. He says, he says, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And he's looking to his savings account to bring him security and satisfy his soul. And he's admitting the same thing that she's admitting, that there is something spiritual going on when you make a purchase or put a big deposit in the bank. So this man looks to his savings account to bring him security to satisfy his soul. And I think in our politically charged culture, many believe that greed is a sin of those up at the top. But Jesus was equal opportunity. He would offend everybody because he wanted everyone, he warned everyone about greed, no matter their social status. Because greed is not just a sin of having, but it's a sin of wanting. It's a sin of desire. So Jesus warns this man. He says, watch out. And he says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And I think one way that we drop our guard when it comes to greed is we define greed too narrowly. You know, somehow the greedy person, it, it never looks like me. It's always the other people, right? You know, the sin of greed is, is called coveting in the Ten Commandments over in Exodus chapter 20. And it says there, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And we focus so much on our neighbor's stuff that we can lose sight of our neighbor. And we forget that there's a person here. And we're just wanting, we're just seeing their stuff, wanting their stuff. We grow envious, jealous, we get greedy, and we forget there's a person here, a person made in God's image, and we lose sight of that. You know, the four commandments before the commandment on coveting, those commandments focus on actions committed or words spoken, so things like don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder, but these things can only grow in the soil of coveting. All those outward actions can only grow out of the soil of coveting. It is a sin of the heart. And here's the reality. Advertisers know that we're like this. And they tap into it. There's a book by Trevin Wax where he writes, advertising taps into our longing for wholeness. And shopping becomes the religious activity intended to satisfy our needs. Advertising is effective because one of the prevailing myths of our time is that salvation comes through accumulation. As we accumulate stuff, we find happiness, or we at least find security. Have you ever seen an ad and you thought, that's a great commercial, 
but what were they advertising again? Because every advertiser knows they've got to do more than just talk about the product. They don't just say, here's the product, here's why you should buy it, boom, 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 here's all the reasons you should go purchase a product. That's not how they do it. What do they do? They tell a story. They want to connect the product to something that is significant to you, something that you can identify with. And so advertisers do this all the time where they connect it to a story because they know the story connects to something a lot deeper within us. They know we're spiritual beings and that we look for identity and significance in what we purchase. And so as we shop for happiness, what do we often find? We find the opposite. We find unhappiness. It never quite fulfills how we think it's going to fulfill us. There's a book that I have that talks about this called The Paradox of Choice. Why More is Less. How the Culture of Abundance Robs Us of Satisfaction. And here's the big idea. Most of us think that more choice leads to more happiness, a very popular idea where we live today, that the more choices I have, the happier I'm going to be. But he shows the more choices that we have, the less happy we are. So I'll give you an example. How many of you all have been to a restaurant and the menu is like a book and you feel overwhelmed? Anybody here get order anxiety? Raise your hand. You know everyone here does it. And you just don't know what to get. There's too many choices. And the server says, are you ready? And you say, sorry, I'm only on chapter three, right? The server leaves and then you ask others. You're like, what are you going to get? What are you going to get? Because here's the deal. If you get what they get, now you can blame them for their poor choice, right? You can blame your friends. And so the server comes back and, uh, and, and you still don't really know. And you ask the server for advice. You take their advice. The food arrives. You take your first bite. And there it is, extreme disappointment, right? You should have gotten something else. So what happened right there in that moment is what Barry Schwartz describes here. What I received was disappointing in comparison to what I expected. Adding options to people's lives can't help but increase the expectations people have about how good those options will be. And what that will produce is less satisfaction with the results even when they're good results. And I think this is true of everything, right? Because how good can food really be? But whenever you see tons and tons of choices, you're like, something in here must be supernatural. Something in here is going to take me to the other world, right? And so we think of it in that way. Like whenever there's lots and lots of options, it's true of everything that we purchase today. When there's so many options, you think, I'm going to find the perfect one, and you almost never do. And I think this is a reality that more choice can lead to less satisfaction for us. And I think it's true of most things. So for this man in the parable, this man, he wants to preserve his choices. He wants options for the future. And he is storing up his treasures so that his soul can be satisfied. And he really believes that he's in control. He really thinks, he believes this illusion that he can secure his future. And what's interesting, when I was in seminary, this professor would always say this. He would define idolatry this way. He would say, idolatry is trying to secure one's future. And it's what drove Israel to idolatry, 
And it's what often drives our idolatry today. The nation of Israel would align themselves with, with these unholy alliances, other nations, and they would worship and bow down their, to their idols. Why? Because they didn't trust God. They didn't trust that God was their provision, that he was their provider. So they'd make these unholy alliances with other nations and, and, and worship their idols. They didn't trust God, that God was who he said he was. And listen, again, this is not a talk about don't save money. That's a, there's other parts of the Bible that refute that, obviously. But this is more about where you place your significance and where you see, what hand do you see providing for you? Is it your own or is it the hand of God? Where are you placing your faith? Where are you placing your trust? And oftentimes, trying to secure our future is often really closely linked to idolatry. I think that we see that in ourselves. So Jesus ends this parable in verse 20. He says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this man's life has abundance, but his soul has a deficit. His life is operating in the black, but his soul is operating in the red, and the debt collector is coming. This man spent his life making himself rich, but all the while he has impoverished himself. John Costler writes, Greed will make atheists of us in the end. Greed will lead us to poverty no matter how many possessions we acquire. Listen, if we give God lip service and we just kind of do the outside, the external thing, you know, the, the, the religious stuff, we give God lip service, but placing our real faith in earthly riches, this is going to lead to a soul that is impoverished, a soul that is poor. And again, whenever we think about greed, we always think about outward actions rather than inward heart attitudes. But Jesus addresses this heart attitude over behind greed over in the Sermon on the Mount. From Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 32, Jesus refers to anxiety four different times. And it's all about how this anxiety about the future is what drives us into greed, drives us to accumulate. You know, there's not going to be enough. I've got to make sure that I, I protect myself and secure my future. And this anxiety drives us over into greed and accumulation. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in that day, it was very difficult to protect valuables. Of course, today we have banks, we have safes, door locks. But back then, a, a thief could just dig through your walls and take whatever they wanted from your house. And so in ancient times, wealth was displayed in metals and in cloth. And so Jesus mentions, why does he mention moths here? I doubt many of you lay awake at night worrying about killer moths coming for your stuff. But that's because clothing is different today. 
Back then, clothing was made from animal fibers like silk and wool, cashmere and furs. And there were certain moths that would lay eggs in clothing and the larvae would, would eat the animal fibers until they become fully grown. And so this is why he makes this statement. But Jesus points out, I think, two weaknesses whenever we commit the sin of greed. The first weakness is in the things themselves, the things that we accumulate. Because somebody can steal them, there's, there's rust, they can deteriorate, they can be stolen. But there's also a weakness within ourselves. And it's this anxiety that can drive us towards greed. I think Jesus addresses both of those here. You're going to see a lot of parallels with this series and the Sermon on the Mount as we get into the series further. So it is true, God gives us these things. Like we need clothing, we need food, of course. But God gives us these things to sustain life, but we cannot start seeing these things as our life source, especially spiritually. We can't go to these things in search of something spiritually significant when it was never meant to provide that for us. So what do you and I do about greed? What do we do about greed? You know, some think that the antidote for greed is laziness. I think we see that often in our culture even today where there are, listen, there are some, some people doing some wise things with money today and, and not buying into the um, some of the cultural expectations that we have today. But there are some people who, you know, want to buck the system or live differently, not really to be more generous, but so they can live a different version for themselves, right? That's happening somewhat today. So some people, you know, cast off the expectation of, 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 of work and, and working hard and, and saving money because it's just really laziness driving those things for some people. So, so laziness isn't the answer. We don't trade one sin for another. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul talks about providing the responsibility to, to provide for your household. And that is a biblical idea, a godly idea. And over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul talks about where he commands the thief to no longer steal, but to work so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, so we counter greed by doing what also what Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, where it talks about putting to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Listen, we have to start seeing greed I have to start seeing greed as idolatry, and I just don't think I see it that way. So we put it to death because we have died with Christ. Because of our position with Christ, if you're a believer, we, we, we then put these sins to death. We put it to death by taking severe measures to root it out of our lives. But the good thing about repentance is that we don't just turn away from the sin and don't just put the sin to death, but we get to turn towards God. We get to turn towards him in relationship, recognizing that he is the most generous one, recognizing that he is a, a giver to us and generous with us. So we counter greed by becoming someone who gives. Whenever you and I 
begin giving things away, whether it's money or whether it's things, this begins to change our relationship to our stuff. You stop finding significance in it. You stop finding, you stop hanging on to it and stop being identified with it. The only way for us to be generous outwardly is to be filled with gratitude inwardly. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, many have taught that this is about physical poverty, and it's not about that. Jesus is talking about a spiritual poverty here. You know, to be poor means that you lack sufficient resources. And so Jesus talks about a spiritual impoverishment here in Matthew 5, that the person who recognizes how spiritually poor they are before God, they have nothing to bring to God, nothing from themselves. What is the worst example of poverty that you have ever seen, physical poverty you've ever seen? I can think of a lot of examples, but one that stands out in my mind is Many years ago, when I took students from this church to uh, Querétaro, Mexico, and we were in this little town square, and it was a little shopping day for the kids, and we're just walking around, and there's this man who's laying on this board with wheels on it, and the man has, has no legs. He has, he's missing an, an arm as well, and he has, the arm that he does have is kind of curled up on his chest, and he's laying down flat on this board, and he's got this little wire with a bell attached to it. He's just holding onto that with his hand and just ringing the bell, hoping for someone to give him food or to give him money. And I saw this man in, in destitute poverty and thought, this is probably the, the worst picture I've seen of someone who is just, I'm sure the man had to have someone bring him out to the square in order to beg for, for food and money. So what is the, the worst example of physical poverty you've ever seen? Now, does that picture define yourself in relation to God, that you have nothing to bring him, nothing to offer him? When we see this truth about ourselves spiritually, I think this changes how we see our stuff. We don't see ourselves as entitled to it. We don't see ourselves as, look, look what I did, look what I accumulated, because you know whose hand it came from. God's generosity to us is the source of our generosity to others. We have to see our giving as connected to what he has given to us. Listen, it's no use to give outwardly while our heart remains selfish and unchanged. We can't see this as a checklist. Like, okay, I just got to go do this, this, and this while our heart still remains far from God or cold towards God, it's got to flow from this inward gratitude that knowing that he has given you the best gift that anyone could ever give. So we cannot do this in our own strength. We have to know the one who became poor on our behalf so that we might be rich spiritually. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray together.
God, we thank you for your generosity to us. Firstly, giving yourself, coming to us in the flesh and and dying a death that we deserved on a cross and then being resurrected on the third day so that we can have life. God, we thank you for how generous you are to us. People that are so undeserving of your blessings, people that are so undeserving of what you have given to us in this life. Yet we know that all of that just points forward to to your kingdom, ultimate fulfillment in a relationship with you for eternity. God, help us to see that, that because of what you've given to us, we can be generous, not just with our stuff and not just with our money, but in time and just in personal interactions as well. Help us be people that are that have a generous spirit about ourselves. Being willing to, being willing to give of ourselves in conversations and in relationships with people in our families, in the church, and also with those here in our city. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.